Last time we were together here in the Gospel of John, we were in the middle of uh, the testimony of John the Baptist concerning Jesus Christ. And I want to finish that off this time. You remember a delegation had come out to John out there in the wilderness, a delegation of priests, and they had come out to see what was going on. In verse 19, John is writing concerning John the Baptist, and he says, This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? There had been no prophet in Israel for 400 years. There had been absolutely nothing even remotely close to revival. Now revival was breaking out. There was a new prophet. He was extremely powerful and extremely anointed by God. So they sent out a delegation to find out who he was. And we talked about that last time. Then came the denial of John to their questions as to who they thought he might be. And in verses 20 down through 24, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. And then they said to him, who are you? That we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He said, if you want to connect me up with anything, connect me with Isaiah's prophecy of the forerunner of the Messiah. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. So we talked about all of that in detail. Leaving then in our three-point outline, one main point left. Having seen the delegation and the denial... We come to the declaration of John, and I want to take sort of a devotional approach to this section this time as we go from verses 25 down to verse 37. What I want to do is I want to take three observations that I see here about John the Baptist's witness and apply them to us here today. To take those three observations, very simple, and use them to form the skeleton of our message for today. By looking at John's witness, I think that we can glean some wonderful, wonderful insights to how we need to be in our witness for Jesus Christ today. So I want to take you through these three things one by one. And use John then as a model in the future for our witnessing. The first thing I want to introduce to you is this. In this passage, we find out that John's witness was simple. John's witness was simple. And the first thing that I see here about his message that he was saying was simply this, God has sent his son to live among men. That was his declaration to the delegation that came out to him on that day. God has sent his son to live among men. Look at verse 25. And they answered him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but then this, But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, a statement of exaltation of Jesus Christ, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan where John was baptizing. And then if you go down to verse 34, he says, And I have seen and testified, this is the Son of God. So here is John's simple message. He says in the first place, God has sent his Son to live among men. There is one among you whom you do not know, and I testify to you this, he's the Son of God. I love that because that is really one of the most engaging truths that we have to share with men today. You know, men and women today are living in great confusion. 
They're groping at anything to find the meaning to life. And we come alone out of the midst of all men and women and groups and different cults and religions. We come alone, as it were, with the light. We come as the bearers of the light, God's people. And one of the great truths that we need to take forth to people today and share with people that don't know Christ is simply this. To begin with, know this, God has sent His Son to live among men. Now then in itself is so engaging that God would love mankind so much that He would send His Son to live among them. That is so simple and yet it is so profound. We need to bring men to the marvel of this. That's a good place to start. Because as men are wondering what the answer is to life, it is so simple to tell them, you don't have to seek any further. You don't have to even make up an answer to life. God sent His Son down here to tell us to live among men. There is one among you whom you do not know. He has the answer. And He is the Son of God. And His name is Jesus Christ. I love to think of the example of Zacchaeus in the Gospel of Luke. Could you turn there? Zacchaeus and his conversion is such a picture of this, of a man coming to realize that God has come down among us to be one of us, that God loved mankind so much that he would come down among us to reach out to us. Zacchaeus in Luke 19 and verse 1. It says here that Jesus entered and he passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. He was a little man. And he ran ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he saw him and he said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down for today. I must stay at your house. And he made haste and he came down. And notice this, he received him joyfully. Here is a man who was hearing that God was among men. When he heard that, he did everything he could to go find out more about this individual, God among men. And when he then had an encounter with him, he received him joyfully. In verse 7, when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. That's the point. God has come down to reach out to men who are sinners. Are you a sinner tonight? Are you outside of the kingdom of God? Are you out of touch with God? Do you not know God? God has come down to reach out to you. Here He is going to have dinner with a sinner. Why? Because that is why He came to earth, to reach sinners to bring them back to himself. And here is a sinner receiving him joyfully. And here are all the self-righteous people getting mad. Verse 8, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is a son of Abraham. For this reason the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That is our message. That is our message. God has come down. You don't have to go out into the cosmos to find Him. You don't have to study UFOs. You don't have to read weird books. All you need to know is that God has come to reach you. He's come down among us. He is, as John said, there is one among you whom you do not know. You want the answer to life? It's Jesus Christ. He has come down among us. 
And though he has died, he has risen and he moves among us today. And that is the great thing. He is as near to us as the words of our mouth, the Bible says. I would encourage all of you to understand this simple picture of Zacchaeus, a sinner receiving Jesus Christ joyfully. And if you don't know him today, know that he's come to find you. And He has brought you to this hour to know about Him and that you can receive Him joyfully as well if you're simply willing as Zacchaeus was to turn from your sins and follow Him. I love Luke 19.6. He made haste, He came down, He received Him joyfully. And Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house because I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. John the Baptist's message, so simple. He said in John 1.26, if you go back there, he said, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. John basically saying, I came to point the way so you could know him personally. So, brethren, as we witness, keep it simple. Keep it simple. God has sent his son to live among men. And then further, John's simple message unfolds a little more. And he basically says, God has sent his son to die for the sin of man. Verse 29 in John 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is effectively his message. It is amazing to me, John could have said so many things about who this man was. This was God. This was the everlasting one. This was the Creator. There's so many things John the Baptist could have said. But what he did say then becomes crucial. And he simply said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God has sent His Son. He's among you. And He has come to die for your sins. Take Him as your Savior. Verse 30, This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for He was before me. And I did not know Him, but that He should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now there's a lot we could say here. There's a number of things we could even deal with here. But all I want to deal with right now is this. This was such good news for the sinners of those days. I mean, most of the people in the crowd were Jewish. John says to them, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now you think of lamb and you think a nice, gentle little creature. And you might think that that's why he chose lamb. I mean, let's face it. We come to the Bible and we read it. We wonder why a lot of times. Why lamb? Well, to the Jewish ears... That carried a world of meaning. In fact, it carried hundreds and hundreds of years of rich meaning and typology. You see, to the Jewish mind, which most of the crowd was, the concept of a lamb sacrificed for sin was deeply embedded into their life. I mean, we studied that in the book of Hebrews, didn't we? See, the scriptures pointed... Get this, the scriptures pointed to this very moment as John is saying, Behold the Lamb of God. The scriptures had been pointing to that moment from the very beginning. From the very beginning. All of the prophecies, all of the types were only incomplete, but pointing to this moment. So that the good news proclaimed by John here is... It comes very strong in the original language. Behold, it's an arresting term. Everybody turn and look and everybody realize... The moment has come. 
Behold the Lamb you've been waiting for all these years who takes away the sin of the world. This is, in other words, the final Lamb. This is the final sacrifice. This is the one we've all been waiting for. It is very rich and very deep and very profound and very simple. Here is the fulfillment of all the incredible progressive teaching in the Old Testament scriptures appointed to that day. Let me just give you a brief overview of what I mean. To begin with, back in the very beginning, you have the lamb typified with Cain and Abel and when they brought the sacrifice. Remember, they brought their two sacrifices, one accepted, one not. The blood sacrifice was accepted and the one of works by Cain was not. The lamb was typified there with Cain and Abel. Then you go further in the Bible and you have the lamb prophesied. For example, turn in your Bible, could you, to Genesis chapter 22 to verses 7 and 8. And we see the lamb prophesied by Abraham. Isaac, his son, asked the most profound question of all the Old Testament. Where's the lamb? That, that question overarchs the entire Old Testament. Genesis 22, 7 and 8. Isaac and his father have gone up the mountain and... Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and he said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Look, the, here's the fire, here's the wood. And here's the question, the all-time Old Testament question. Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, this is the most interesting phrase, God will provide for himself the lamb. You can even translate that, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, and so the two of them went together. That was all a picture of what was coming. So the lamb typified with Abel and Cain, the lamb prophesied with Abraham. You go on and you have the lamb's blood applied in Exodus. And many of you know the story of the Passover. They killed the lamb, they took his blood, they put it over the doorpost. It just so happens that when they put the blood here, and they put the blood here, and they put the blood up here, as the blood went, dripping it formed the shape, of course, of a cross. And all of that then procured for the person who had the blood on their house, the passing over of death, which is a picture of God passing over our sin because of the blood of the Lamb, all of it foretelling the Lamb of God. Then you come to the Lamb personified as a man in Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, 7, it says, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, all speaking of Christ, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He, the lamb. So the lamb typified, prophesied, the lamb's blood applied, and now he is personified by Isaiah. And you see, in the crowd with John, these people have all of this heritage readily accessible in their minds because it was their whole life. Their whole life. And then you have, finally, the moment comes where you have the Lamb identified. And this is the greatest moment up until this time in the history of the Jewish people. And so in John 1.29, it says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, he must have trembled as he said it. Behold, he must have been filled with joy as he said it. Behold, he must have been filled with excitement beyond anybody could, what we could imagine as he said it. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I love what John Phillips puts in here in his commentary. He says this, The arrival of Jesus 
was a moment freighted with possibilities. The Passover feast was approaching, a feast that commemorated the exodus of Israel from Egypt, the birth of the Hebrew nation, and the demonstration of redemption by the blood of the Lamb. We can be sure that Jesus chose this moment unerringly for his formal presentation to the nation by his now famous herald, John the Baptist. From John's words, we can see that he had the Passover in mind. By John describing Jesus as the Lamb of God, he is reaching out and describing the ultimate sacrifice of God's ultimate Lamb, ultimately for the sins of the whole world. It is an incredible moment in the history of the human race. He went right to the heart of Israel's need. He went right to the heart of the whole world's need, forgiveness for sin. And he said, folks, this is it right here. This is what we've been waiting thousands of years for. This is what God spoke of in the garden. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And all of that, get this, with Passover sheep bleeding in the background, lambs going up, by the thousands to be sacrificed at Passover. And here stands the ultimate Passover lamb. What a moment. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So you must realize this was such good news for sinners in those days. And that's why revival broke out with John to such an extreme. But it is such good news for sinners of all time. It, this is timeless truth. In 1857, I love this story. This is a testimony from Charles Spurgeon. In 1857, a day or two before preaching at the Crystal Palace, Spurgeon said, I went to decide where the platform should be fixed. It was a huge place. He didn't normally preach there, but so many people were coming to hear him. He had to go to this giant place. He said, in order to test the acoustic properties of the building, I cried in a loud voice, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. In one of the galleries, a workman who knew nothing of what was being done heard the words and they came like a message from heaven to his soul. He was smitten with conviction by the Holy Spirit on account of his sin. He put down his tools. He went home and there, after a season of spiritual struggling, found peace and life and salvation by beholding the Lamb of God. And on his deathbed, he told that story. That is so wonderful. You see, we're learning from John the Baptist that the simple witness is the powerful witness. It doesn't have to be complicated to be powerful. It is simple, but learn this. It is simple, but it's not simplistic. Keep your witness about Christ simple. It doesn't have to be simplistic, but it needs to be simple. Do you understand the difference? The difference is this. It doesn't have to be shallow. It doesn't have to be immature. It doesn't have to be full of ignorance. I mean, you, we can grow in our understanding of Jesus dying for our sins for our entire lives. If we all live to be a hundred, there'll be more we can understand and a deeper grasp we can gain on this simple truth. That's what I mean. It doesn't have to be simplistic. It can be deep, full of conviction, and yet at the same time, it's so simple. A child can understand it. Keep your witness about Christ simple. You know, we forget who we're talking to when we're talking to people that don't know the Lord. And we throw in all this theology that we've learned. And we literally muddy up the water with the light. We darken the room with the light, as it were. We get them so confused, they don't even know what our message is. Listen, if they don't know Christ yet, keep it simple. 
Remember who you're talking to. John's message was so simple. I say again, of all the things he could have said about Jesus, he says this, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The cross, you see, was right at the heart of John's message. And that's where it needs to be with us. This year, one of the nights at the crusade at Anaheim Stadium was the first night, Friday night, at the Harvest Crusade. I happened to end up talking to uh, Greg Laurie on the telephone we ended up on the freeway, my car right behind his, oddly enough. So I buzzed him in his car, and I said, Greg, I'm right behind you. He said, well, where are you? I said, right behind you, right here on the freeway in the fast lane. I said, how do you feel? He said, you know, I feel so good. I said, what's the main thing that happened to you tonight? He said, I'll tell you, it was profound. He said, all the way through the message, God kept telling me, Greg, keep it simple. Greg, remember who you're talking to. Greg, this is not a Bible study. Greg, these people don't know Christ. Greg, they need the simple gospel. Greg, keep it on Christ and his death on their behalf. Greg, just keep it simple. And he said, that just came through loud and clear so much, he said, that I abandoned a lot of my prepared message. And he said, you know what, from now on, that's what I'm going to do. The amazing thing is that that night was the highest percentage of, I think, any crusade where the people came forward to respond to Christ of any crusade he's done so far. And that the percentages from that night all through Anaheim, down in San Diego, and now in uh, last weekend in Honolulu, the percentages of the people responding to the message are higher than normal. They're above average. What Greg is learning is what John the Baptist already knew. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Listen, if it works for Greg, if it works for John the Baptist, and it has been working for Billy Graham for years, I think it'll work for us, don't you? So keep it simple. Let's learn from John. Let's learn from the simplicity of the man who was ordained and set up and anointed and sent by God to be the forerunner of God Himself on earth, Jesus Christ. And let's keep our message simple. So what we've learned from John so far is this, is that his witness was simple. Let me take you to a second thought. This is so obvious that if I don't point it out, we'll completely miss it. Because it is so obvious, we would look beyond it. Not only was John's witness simple, John's witness was, get this, it was verbal. It was verbal. Let me talk to you about this for a minute. Let's read through the verses down to verse 34 from verse 30. John's witness was verbal. Look at this. It says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore I came baptizing with water. And notice, John bore witness saying, it's verbal, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, John is saying, I didn't know him in his fullness until the moment he came to me, then I knew him in his fullness. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptized with the Holy Spirit, who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, And I have seen, and notice, testified, this is the Son of God. His witness was verbal. Let me say this to you. Our witness needs to be simple and it needs to be verbal. You say, well, I, you know, I don't feel like I have the gift of evangelism. You're still the light of the world and you still have a mouth, and you still have been given the gospel, and you still are required by God to share it. He wants to bless you by having you lead others to Christ. That is not to undervalue a nonverbal witness. 
Some of you aren't real gifted with evangelism, and so you seek to be a light by your life. And frankly, gifted or not with evangelism, we all need to seek to be a light by our life. A nonverbal witness. Let me say this about a nonverbal witness. A nonverbal witness is foundational. That's what it is. It is foundational. If you say, what is the place of a nonverbal witness in my life, letting my light shine? What is the place of it? I'll tell you what it is. It is foundational. It is foundational for what comes afterwards. A nonverbal witness is foundational. In this sense, it is to be the evidence of a spirit-filled, Christ-centered life, which, may I add, is a life unlike any other life that can be lived on this earth. It is to be living proof, in other words. It is foundational in the sense that it's living proof. Now, we can really make an impact with a nonverbal witness. But you have to understand what a nonverbal witness is all about. It isn't like the lady who came to her pastor and said, Oh, God is using me to witness for Christ in a nonverbal way at work. And he said, Well, how is that? She said, Well, a man came to me the other day and asked me to go to the store and buy him a pack of cigarettes. And I told him I don't believe in smoking. And I wouldn't do it. Oh, it's such a joy to be a witness for the Lord on the job. The pastor said, May I suggest to you that... He probably just thought you were rude, number one. Number two, he probably just thought you were arrogant. Number three, since you've never told him you're a Christian, he doesn't know what you're up to. Therefore, all you did was confuse the man. So what you thought was a great and wonderful and powerful witness was nothing but a confusing incident in that man's life. We need to understand what we mean by a nonverbal witness. It isn't just saying, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't chew gum. You know, it isn't that kind of a thing. A nonverbal witness is living a spirit-filled life that gives evidence that God lives in you. It is living proof to people around you that God comes to live in a man or a woman when they believe upon Jesus Christ. And if we live that way, we can really make an impact in a foundational sense for this reason. Everything that's happening is a work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he wants to manifest himself through you. In John 1.33, John says that it is Jesus who will baptize, who baptizes, he said, with the Holy Spirit. This is what happens. God fills you with the Holy Spirit when you're born again. He fills you with the Holy Spirit as you seek him for that spirit-filled life. He fills you with that glory and that power and that joy and that love. And then when that is happening, it manifests itself right through you. Almost right through your skin. I mean, what do you think pores are for? So rays can come out. No, not really, but sweat comes out of pores. This is how God manifests himself through your behavior and your countenance, right? So that if someone looks at your life, it's a nonverbal witness, what they see is a different kind of behavior. They watch you in all different situations and they see a different behavior. And what they see in a big way is your face, your countenance. Think of this. You know, when Moses went up on the mountaintop, he said, God, show me your glory. You get close to the glory of God. Moses came down, his face was glowing. Any Christian filled with the Spirit of God is going to have their countenance really warmed and brightened by the Spirit of God. If God's life is in you and you're yielding to it, it's going to show right through your face. So that the nonverbal witness then is something that makes it very evident to the non-believer that you are carrying around inside of you something no one else has except a Christian. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit and you carry God with you. 
That's the point. So a nonverbal witness is then living proof of a spirit-filled life. And in that sense, it becomes very powerful and it's very foundational. I love the story of Adoniram Judson many years ago, just to show you how God can use this aspect of the nonverbal witness. Many years ago, when the great missionary Adoniram Judson was home on furlough, he passed through the city of Stonington, Connecticut, and a young boy playing about the wharves at the time of Judson's arrival was struck by the man's appearance. Never before had he seen such light on any human face. He ran up the street to his pastor to ask him if he knew who the stranger was. The pastor hurried back with him, but became so absorbed in conversation with Judson that he forgot all about the impatient little boy standing near him. Many years afterwards, that boy who could never forget the influence of that wonderful face became the famous preacher Henry Clay Trumbull. And when he wrote his memoirs, he penned a a chapter entitled, What a Boy Saw in the Face of Adoniram Judson, That Lighted Countenance Changed His Life. But I suggest to you that there was more than that. The lighted countenance got his attention. The lighted countenance showed him there was something different about this man that perhaps could be something he could enjoy. It lured him in. It drew him in. And then it was the truth of the gospel that won him to salvation. So what I'm saying is this. John's witness was simple. Secondly, John's witness was verbal. And because so many of you, including myself, would like to run to the thing of the nonverbal witness and say, that's my post in life. I have to tell you, it is foundational, but it's not complete. So that a nonverbal witness is foundational, but a verbal witness is vital. It's vital. Why? Because men are saved through hearing the gospel, not just by looking at a glowing face or even a glowing life, a good life. They're drawn in by that, but they're saved by hearing the gospel. So I'm not denying the importance of a nonverbal witness. I've made that abundantly clear, but there must be a verbal witness if it's to be a complete witness. I read about a boy who went off to college. He grew up in a Christian home and he went off to a secular college and his parents were really concerned the whole time. How's he doing, we wonder, at college? He came home at Christmas and they said, well, how did everything go at college? He said, oh, fabulous. I got along great. He said, no one in college even suspects that I'm a Christian. Nonverbal, huh? completely. You see, we need to have a complete witness. Nonverbal is foundational. It's even inspired and should be by the Holy Spirit. But a verbal witness is vital. Paul is so clear on this. Could you turn to Romans chapter 1 to verse 16? We can look at it together. Then we'll go a little farther to Romans 10. Men are saved through hearing the gospel. Brethren, we need to give it to them. We need to tell it to them. We need to have our voice ringing in other people's ears with the truth of the gospel. Romans 1.16 and 17, Paul said it. He said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I go beyond a nonverbal witness. I go beyond a godly life. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I open my mouth and I speak it. Why? Because I understand it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. If people are going to be saved, they need to hear the gospel. You cannot smile them into the kingdom. As wonderful as that is. I remember when I was sealed in the darkness in the drug world, specifically on LSD. I used to spend my Saturday nights on LSD and these Christians used to come around and just sit by us and smile 
And I used to look at them and think, they haven't taken a thing and they're having more fun than all of us. It isn't right. And what's the deal here? So lured in by that smile, I asked them and they began to tell me about Christ. I thank God for those people that went beyond a bright, shining, nonverbal witness to a verbal one. Why? Because in verse 17 it says, For in the gospel is a righteousness from God revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, as it is written, the righteous or the just will live by faith. We must open our mouths, brethren, and share. Go to Romans 10.13. What we are talking about is that men are saved through hearing the gospel. And God has called us to share it. Furthermore, He's equipped us. Romans 10.13. This is how people are saved. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then shall they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So then, down in verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, just like to the Romans, he said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When you open your mouth and you share the truth, the power of God goes forth with that message. Your voice, I'll say it again, should be heard in the ears of someone else in your life, proclaiming the truth of Jesus Christ because God saves men through the preaching of the Word of God. And that is why Paul puts it so clearly like this. If they don't hear the message, how are they going to come to Christ? Men are saved through hearing the gospel. Let me give you a, a little further thought on that. Men are saved through those with a readiness to preach the gospel. Men are saved through those who have a readiness to preach the gospel. Don't you see it in John the Baptist? I mean, he's ready to go. I can just see him when the sun comes up every morning, getting himself in position. He's taking down a few locusts, having a little honey, maybe gulping down some coffee to top it off. I don't know, but he's getting all ready. And then when the people had come out, there he was preaching away. He was ready to speak about Christ. Are you ready to speak about Christ? Throughout all the history of the church, if you start with John the Baptist and move forward out to our time, the men and women who have greatly moved the world for God through Jesus Christ have been those who were ready to speak of this Christ who saves men. I read about a man by the name of Douglas Thornton who impressed me. He was an English Christian years ago, and he was being seen off at a railway station in Egypt. His friend was there with him, and with some difficulty, his friend found him an empty compartment on the train. And as Thornton entered into the train to the compartment, he said, What is this, an empty compartment? And he said, Yeah. He said, I looked all over to find it for you so you could be comfortable. He said, Listen, Ian, I want to fish on this train. He said, Find me a crowded compartment. I want to be with a lot of people. It's also recorded that when exploring the Great Pyramid on the outskirts of Cairo, Thornton was crawling on his knees up through a very narrow tunnel, and he had a guide who was crawling up the tunnel right behind him on his hands and knees, and all the way up the tunnel he was evangelizing the guy behind him. <laughs> Somebody ready at any opportunity to open his mouth and share. Why? Because they understand, people like this, that this is how God saves people. Now you might be thinking, well, where do I get this readiness? To share the gospel. 
I would say this. You must anticipate that the Holy Spirit is going to quicken you at times to verbally share Christ. Anticipate it. Realize that this is what He does. The Holy Spirit has come to fill you, to quicken you, that you might be a witness. Jesus said it, didn't He? In the book of Acts, in chapter 1, Jesus said that power would come upon them. He said in Acts 1-4, He commanded them to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You've heard from Me. Then He connects this truth with John the Baptist. He says, for John truly baptized with water. Remember, John said, but Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now he goes back to that. He says, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then in verse 8 he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the way out to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit is going to come to fill you to be witnesses. So if you ask me, how do I become one of these people that has a readiness to open my mouth and verbally share Christ, I say again to you, anticipate that the Holy Spirit is going to quicken you and fill you at times expressly, purposefully, specifically for the reason that you would open your mouth and with power verbally speak forth the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said that I'm going to send the Spirit to fill you so you can be witnesses to me. And then I love to go on into the book of Acts and see what happens. Look at Peter, what happens to him. A guy who couldn't witness to a campfire girl a few days earlier denies Christ in front of a campfire girl and, and does it with an oath and denies him again and again. And suddenly this man gets filled with this power which you and I have full access to. And he stands up in front of thousands of people and he preaches with boldness and clarity and power. And the people respond because it's anointed, it's inspired by God. You go on and you see the brethren in the books, book of Acts and they come together and they're having great persecution. They're becoming timid. They're losing their readiness to open their mouth and share the gospel verbally. So they pray and they ask God. They come to the Holy Spirit, God to fill them and empower them to go out and share. And the Bible says the place was shaken. And they went out and they spoke the word of God with boldness. It says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they went out and spoke the word of God with boldness. Let's put it very simply. Why does God fill you with the Holy Spirit? One of the main reasons, there are others, but one of the main reasons is that you would verbally share Christ with other people and do it with power. Jesus, in case you're wondering how you get this power, Jesus in Luke 11:13 said, How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? If you want the power to have the readiness to give the verbal witness, anticipate that work of the Holy Spirit within you and ask for that work of the Holy Spirit within you and then be ready. You don't have to force it. Pray, ask for open doors, be ready, wait on God, and when the open door is there and you're feeling the quickening, you're going to feel like Jeremiah with a fire in your bones so that if you even try to keep quiet, you're going to open your mouth anyway. And you're going to find God using you. And you're going to hear things coming out that amaze even you. And you're going to be talking along and say, Whoa, this is good stuff. I like it. <laughs> if the brethren could only hear me now. But the important thing is, who is hearing you? This person who needs Christ. John's witness was simple. John's witness was verbal. Let me give you one last thought, just very quickly. John's witness, as a result, was effective. It was effective. 
Look at John 1.35. It says, And again the next day John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus, this is now the next day, looking at Jesus as he walked, he turns to two of his own disciples, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. And those two disciples heard him speak, and they turned, and they went, and they followed Jesus. I love it. His witness was effective. We'll go on to talk about who these guys were and what happened next time, but do you see how simple John's ministry really was? Simple but not simplistic. Simple but a depth to it. Simple but powerful. Simple and verbal. Simple and effective. And here these guys go, and they come to follow Christ. They become some of the great men in the kingdom of God. How simple the means, but how grand the result. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's a simple declaration of God's truth. You look at John's ministry and you don't see a lot of fleshy help from himself. You don't see a lot of John whipping it up. You don't see a lot of flashy technique. What you see with John is John setting forth the truth in the person of Christ. And I want to encourage you in this. And I'll leave you with this thought. Too often today we're worried about our technique. Too often today we're worrying about how we're coming across. Too often today we're studying everybody else who's been successful in this and that, and reading their books so we can can it and copy it and do it like they do. Instead of spending our time and our energy studying Christ, studying His death and His resurrection, plowing deeper into the simple truth of how God saves and redeems men, if we will give ourselves to studying the truth of Christ, then we will be able to share Christ with a simplicity and a clarity and a depth and a power that will be effective. Stop giving all your energy and time and everything else to trying to have this slick technique where you can thunder and melt people's hearts with your technique. Know this. It is the truth that melts people's hearts. It is the Holy Spirit of God anointing the truth that breaks people's hearts and that thunders within the depths of their souls and brings them even at a point almost irresistibly drawn by the love of God to turn and embrace Christ. The Word of God, the Gospel of Christ, is the power of God unto salvation. And brethren, it is far more power than any one of us here tonight. It is far more powerful than any one of us here tonight even imagine. We need to step out in faith. We need to get in step with the Holy Spirit. We need to be ready. We need to live the life, have the foundation of the nonverbal witness, and then be ready for the quickening of the Holy Spirit, who will quicken us expressly and purposely to reach out and open our mouths and have ringing in the ears of those we work with and know and live near the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we keep it simple and as we make it verbal, we will find it will be effective, and we will end up taking people to heaven with us. What could be grander than that? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. Thank you, God, for the simplicity of the gospel. So simple that any one of us here can have a wonderful grasp upon it. We are all here listening to this message with varying intellects. Some here are probably geniuses. Some here are probably pretty smart. Some here probably feel they're dumb. Some here maybe even feel stupid. But we thank you, Jesus, that we're your children by the blood that you shed on your cross and that you have made a way of salvation that whether we have a low or a high IQ, whether we're sharp or dull, mentally, 
We can grasp the truth of salvation through your death and resurrection, and we can, as your children, be filled with your power to share it. Lord God, by your love and by your grace and by your light, lift us up and out of the deceptions that we have cleverly placed upon our own selves as to why we do not have to verbally share Christ. Free us from the deception, Lord, of thinking, well, someone else will tell them. And help us to realize, Lord, that maybe someone else won't. And maybe we have come to the kingdom for such a time as this and this person in front of us even now at this moment. And give us the grace and the power and the quickening to give forth an effective, simple, verbal witness for you. And then, Lord, give us the joy of seeing people come to know Christ through our ministry and our efforts and our witness. And we will be careful to give you all the glory, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.